It is great to see everyone here today. As we continue in our series on Facing Our Giants, I have the distinct pleasure of sharing God's word with you today. But before we go on, let's bow our heads and ask for God's blessing upon our time. Father, as we come before you and your word as always, we pray that our hearts would be open and our minds would be sharp. Lord, I specifically pray that uh, you would help me to be sensitive about the topic that we're going to discuss today. And Lord, would you make all of us sensitive to the movement of your Holy Spirit, God. And may your word ring true deep inside of our hearts. And Lord, may it bring about life change in the moment. And as we walk out these doors, we pray all of these things in your name and for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today, I want to start off with a story. It may sound like a joke, but it's not a joke. Two Buddhist monks were walking into a drenching thunderstorm. They came to a stream, and it was swollen out of its banks. A beautiful young Japanese woman in a kimono stood there and uh, wanted to get to the other side, but was afraid of the current. And um, in characteristic Buddhist uh, compassion, one of the monks said, "Can, can I help you? The woman said, I need to cross the stream. The monk picked her up, put her on his shoulder, carried her through the water, and put her down on the other side. And then he and his companion went on to the monastery. Uh, Later that night, his companion came up to him and said, you know, I have a bone to pick with you. As as Buddhist monks, we have taken vows not to look on a woman, much less touch her body. But back there by the river, you did both. The first monk said, my brother, my brother, I put that woman down on the other side of the river. You're still carrying her in in your mind. (laughs) You know, what we carry in our minds is a powerful thing, isn't it? It can have grave implications. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.27 that even if you look upon someone with lustful intentions, with lust in your heart, that you're already guilty of having committed adultery in your heart. I mean, what are we to do, Lord? Are are we to just walk around with blinders on? Just a glance and a thought is no longer innocent enough. I don't think I need to tell you that lust is a serious offense. It's a serious giant with serious implications and consequences. It can crush and bring down families. It can destroy lives and marriages. It can even bring down the highest of leaders. It has humbled presidents. It has humbled pastors. It has humbled CEOs, kings, and queens throughout time. No one is immune to its weight, to its harm. Lust does not discriminate against anyone. In our passage today, in 2 Samuel 11, we see that lust can even crush a beloved king, a war hero, God's chosen leader of his people and his nation. And of course, you know who I'm talking about is King David. Now, let me set the kind of the scene for you. David was, in uh, Pastor Kent Henry's words, he was supremely brave. When he met Goliath, and Goliath came out with rather fierce rhetoric Uh, publicly defying the God of Israel, 
David responded with some spine-tingling rhetoric of his own, telling Goliath, who just towered over him, he was going to take his head and he was going to feed his body to the birds because God was fighting with him. And you know how that ended. Uh, David was also evidently a superb athlete. Uh, It mentions him jumping fences, outrunning troops, killing lions, killing bears, single-handed. Not to mention Goliath. I mean, his aim was so good, he hit him right between the running lights, and that was it for Goliath. You know that story. Uh, The scriptures also tell us he was intensely handsome, ladies. With beautiful eyes, the scriptures say, and a a ruddy complexion. He was the archetypical sanguine personality, joyous and effervescent. People were drawn to him. He was charismatic. Scriptures also tell us he was a poet, a sweet psalmist, a musician, no less. And he was so in touch with God and so in touch with the heart of man that what he wrote played the heartstrings of men and women. For 3,000 years, as as it still does today. And under David's rule, all of Israel came together. I mean, it, it was like Camelot. The golden age of his life. And he hardly seemed to be a candidate for any sort of failure. The boy who had reached legend status by slaying a literal giant of his day didn't see the bigger giant coming later in life. See, 2 Samuel 11 tells of this story. It played out like a steamy scene out of a current Hollywood blockbuster movie. It says that it was springtime, the season when kings usually went out to war. The rainy season was over, and now it was time when kings and their armies came to battle. But on this day... Scriptures tell us David remained home. Some scholars would argue why he remained home, but the fact that he did, and it turned out to be a bad decision, is not in debate. So one evening, as he walked onto the rooftop of his palace, he was peering onto the rooftop of the houses that surrounded him. Apparently his version of uh, surfing the internet. And he noticed a beautiful woman bathing. It was here that he then made a decision, a decision that would stain his reign as king. He inquired, he clicked on the image and asked that the woman be brought to his palace that he may lay with her, that he may have her. Now, the interesting thing here is that about this is that before the time he had come to Jerusalem, um, the law permits the king to have multiple wives. And at this point, Scripture tells us he had somewhere between six and seven uh, wives. He, had, he basically had a harem. Though it was permissible, it was not looked upon favorably by God. So for him to add another woman to his harem reflected so much more than just lust. Not to mention, he didn't even consider that Bathsheba was married. And not just to someone that he didn't know... She was married to Uriah the Hittite. One of the men in his armies that was actually fighting for him in the front lines against the Ammonites. So the story goes, she became pregnant. 
So what, he, what does he do? He tries to cover it up by calling Uriah home from the battlefield, asking him to come home and sleep with your wife so that everyone would think the child is yours. Wow. But what does Uriah do? He resists. Why? He is so loyal to the king and the mission of Israel. He refuses to experience the love and warmth of his own wife while all his fellow soldiers were still fighting in the battlefield. The scriptures tell us that he refused to go home, so he slept by the door of the palace for two, three days. And David came out and was like, what are you doing here? He's like, sir, my men are still fighting. I cannot go home when they're still out in the battlefield. So David sends him back into the battlefield. And then David sends orders to send Uriah to the most vicious front line, knowing that he will be killed. See, if he can't hide his sin by trickery, he'll get rid of the problem. I mean, it's an awful story. Baby dies, Uriah dies, it's awful. Here was David, the giant slayer, beloved one of God. If you ever thought you were safe from the dangers of lust, I would ask that you would reconsider your stance. Where do you think God was in, in David's mind and heart during this entire situation? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes a powerful statement in his book, Temptation. He says, when lust takes control, at that moment, God is quite unreal to us. In other words, when you are in the grip of lust, God seems to evaporate. See, the longer David gazed at Bathsheba, the more unreal God became. That's what happened with him. That's what lust does. It's done it millions of times. Lust makes God vanish. You know, a number of years ago, a national conference for church youth directors was held at a major hotel in a city in the Midwest, in the Midwest. Youth pastors by the hundreds flooded into the hotel and took nearly every room. At the conclusion of the conference, the hotel manager told the conference administrator that the number of guests who tuned into the adult movie channel broke the previous record. Far and away, outdoing any other convention in the history of the hotel. When interviewed, all hotel um, managers said that porn rates increased during conferences in general. That's normal because they have more guests. A few admitted that it seems to be the same or a bit more when Christian conferences come to town. One manager was a Christian and he said this. Unfortunately, they know you are Christians by your porn consumption. Is more truthful than love when it comes to this. Not only does our struggles with lust among other giants in our lives make us want to hide from God's holy gaze, but lust makes God vanish as reflected in our actions. But let me pause here for a second as some of us may be squirming in our seats saying, dang, the one day he came to church and he's talking about lust. 
But my friend, before you start to feel hopeless and shamed or guilty, I want to let you know that there's nothing you can do that will make you invisible to God's love and mercy. You will never, ever be invisible to him. And from this passage, what can we learn about facing this giant that most of us, if not all of us, both men and women, young and old, struggle with? With David, I guess in this situation, we certainly learn what not to do. Okay, now, this is where I'm supposed to tell you that, that the practical applications to lust would be to run away from lust. Right? You've heard this before. If we are to properly live out the value of purity and holiness, we must do our part in creating an environment where those values will survive and thrive. You know, there's this one scene in one of my favorite movie, movies of all time, The Princess Bride. Anyone? Everyone? You all right? One of the best movies ever. Where um, one of my favorite characters of all time Inigo Montoya. I, I actually even have to say it with a Spanish accent, right? Inigo Montoya finally meets the man who killed his father. All his life, since being a young boy, he wanted to avenge his father's death by killing his murderer. So there's this one scene where in the castle, where they're storming the castle, he runs into the man along with his guards. The man who killed his father. Orders the guards to... Kill all of them, but save the dark one for questioning. And as they attack him, he does all his swashbuckling things, and they are all lying on the floor dead. And then he turns his knife, his, his, not his knife, his sword, to the man who killed his father. He goes, you can say it with me. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You know that scene? What happens next? The guy turns his sword, and then he runs away. It's one of the best scenes in the movie. Run away from lust. Yes, that's a practical application. Create the environment where lust will not thrive. You know the saying, when uh, I, I've said this to my kids once in a while, Dad, it hurts when I do this. Well, stop doing that. You've heard the sermons on lust. In the book Influencer, which is a fabulous book that uh, our staff is reading right now, Joseph Graney and his team of social scientists say they have unlocked the science of leading change. And they make this argument that if real change is going to happen, we must give careful attention to the environment in which our values exist. For example... If you are a severe alcoholic, would it be a good idea to be a bartender? If you are trying to seriously lose weight because you have a problem with food, would it be a good idea to work at an all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant? I believe what Granny would have told David if hired as a consultant would have been that if he was struggling with passion and lust, King David, uh, you should have locked the roof door Passed a law in the land that women should never be naked on the roof or on the outside. 
and as well as a rule that the king should be never left alone with a married woman. Now, that last one sounds a little bit familiar to us because we actually have rules called Keener's Commandments in our employee handbook. And some of you may have heard of this. And one of those commandments is this. That no man, especially a married man, should ever be alone in a room or in a car with another woman or someone of the opposite sex. And we abide by those rules. Because we want to make sure that the environment exists, that the value can thrive and survive. Create the environment where your values will survive. That's a great piece of advice. But David didn't have granny. God didn't send a consultant. God sent his prophet Nathan to speak into David's web of deceit and lies. He pointed out David's sin. It's a great read. 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you've never read it. And what we learn there is is this. That you are never too far from God to receive mercy. But let me ask this question. Is changing our actions enough to change the heart's affections? We all know that we shouldn't. But we can't help but want something. It's like what Paul says in his letter to the Romans as he asks, Why is it that I do the things that I don't want to do and don't do the things that I want to do? It's human nature. He says, It's sin living in me. I contend to you today and will contend to you again and again. That we must change our heart's affections if we are to truly face the giants in our lives. And especially the giant of lust. You know, as I thought about why I struggle with lust, with like everyone else on one level or another, is that I struggle with beauty. We have to be careful in how we deal with with beauty. We live in such a graphic culture. We live in an image culture. You don't have to look or think very far to realize this. You know, Neil Postman, he wrote in a book called In Amusing Ourselves to Death, talks about the, um, the presidential campaign back in uh, like 1858 against Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. And um, Everyone was reading and listening to what they were saying for hours and hours. Literally four, five, even eight hours. Uh, But he made this interesting point. He said, but if those two candidates had walked down any main street across America, no one would have recognized who they were. Isn't that interesting? They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have the internet. People cared more about ideas than images. People didn't care how they came across cameras, if they looked harsh or overweight or tall or short or handsome or ugly. They were electing people on the basis of their ideals and their ideas. Isn't that a novel idea? But today we're, we're bombarded with images every day. We're inundated with images of beauty. And can I tell you something? Beauty is crushing us. 
It's crushing women in the way it's reflected in the rise of eating disorders. It's reflected in the way that self-esteem is lower and lower than it's ever been. It's crushing men as the rate of pornography, how that popular that is becoming. It's crushing marriages with unreal expectations of happiness in what is normal. It crushes the aging population, the aging generation, with this idea that, you know what, we have to keep staying looking younger and younger. It's crushing young people with unhealthy ideas of beauty. Young girls looking older when they're younger. Expectations to look and dress a certain way. Young boys, it's crushing young boys because they're starting to place the expectations on their young female friends on what true beauty is. Beauty is crushing us. And it's so imperative for us to not let beauty seduce us. For it leads us to lust after those things that we find beautiful. But here's the thing. Can we just have an honest conversation in the cone of safety? Right? We'll never really able to overcome our obsession with beauty. We'll never be able to overcome our obsession with beauty. Because for those of us who are afraid of aging... Maybe we're not really sure we're going to live on after death. So you feel like this is all I've got. I got to preserve it and live as long as I can. For those of us with poor self-esteem who are desperate to look pretty or have someone pretty, we'll do whatever it takes to be with someone pretty or, or achieve the culture's definition of pretty. Even give up on an aging spouse for a younger one. For those young people who are obsessed with being Facebook worthy or Instagram worthy or selfie obsessed, you'll do whatever it takes to take a beautiful picture. For young people who grew up in this image healthy, the image heavy culture, in a world of instant networks and YouTube shamings and Instagram juries, it's, it's always about being hot or not. Being in or out and coming out versus hiding. You'll do whatever it takes Not to be the odd man out. For those of us men, especially, who have deep insecurities and secrets, will do things in secret because of guilt and try to mask sin just like David did. Can I tell you something? You'll never be able to overcome this obsession with beauty just by trying harder. But Isaiah tells us something. Isaiah tells us about a Messiah coming who has no beauty. He had no form or majesty, he writes, that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Philippians 2 indicates uh, Jesus as having the ultimate beauty. Beauty without bearing. But though he had all the glory and beauty, he became ugly. 
So through his ugliness and through his loss, we might receive the ultimate beauty. That we might be acceptable to Christ, to God the Father. We are accepted in the beloved, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He became ugly for us. In his book, Closing the Window, the author Tim Chester shares the following quotes from men who have struggled with guilt and condemnation that comes from viewing pornography. Here are some of these quotes. It's made me want to hide from God. It makes me doubt my salvation. And then the depression comes, and with the depression comes temptation to sin again. I feel crap about myself. I don't feel worthy to serve God, and I don't believe I can break the habit. Some of you feel like that? I feel dirty and unable to approach God after looking at porn, so often I feel unable to come to Him in repentance, even though I know my sin is already dealt with. I couldn't talk with God about my problems. My picture of him was that he would accept me if and when I had scrubbed up enough. He continues, without condoning the sin of viewing porn, Tim Chester offers the following words of hope to people who are struggling with lust. Listen carefully. Jesus lived God's welcome to sinners. He embodied God's mercy. He was known as the friend of sinners. The religious people didn't like it. Because it turned their proud systems of self-righteousness upside down. But Jesus sat down to eat with prostitutes and adulterers and porn addicts. On the cross, God treated Christ as a porn user, an adulterer, an unfaithful spouse. And here's a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 5.17. God made Jesus, who never looked with lust, to be a porn addict for us, so that in him we might become sexually pure. That's powerful stuff. Only then, and only then, will any attempts to change your behavior truly make impact in the person that we are. Lust is the condition of the heart. As with most things, lust will come down to one thing. The Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Just as Jesus preached against having two masters when he came to finances and money, so is this giant of lust. So I make this final suggestion to you. Let's starve the giant of lust by not giving it more attention but on working on giving our focus and attention to loving God above all else. It's human nature, isn't it? That when we're told not to eat something or think about something or do something, what do we want to do? Do that very thing. Am I the only one that's been on a diet here? Right? And am I the only one with young kids? Don't open that. It's human nature. We obsess over the very thing we are told we can't have. You know, I just read a great quote on Facebook from uh, Judah Smith, Pastor Judah Smith, the pastor out in California. He says, God asks us to live a life 
we're not able to live without him. So instead of trying to undo habits that is born out of a heart's affection for things that are sensual, gratifying our lustful desires, why not change the heart's affection first and foremost so that the habits become more and more distasteful to us? You know, I read an article uh, just before I came here by John Piper. He made a suggestion about temptations and lust. He said, every time you have a lustful thought, think about Jesus on the cross and see how long it lasts. I said, wow, that's a real quick suggestion. I'm going to share that one. If we change the environment or the habits before we even hold the value, I tell you, the value is probably doomed for the long run. Look, honestly, I'm not saying doing all the things you've heard in sermons about lust and temptations or all the things that you will hear going forward about the things you should do to stay away from lust and temptations aren't good or that they don't work. They do. They will help. But what I am saying is that changing your actions and decisions do not necessarily change your heart. Because if the heart doesn't change, those good decisions are simply short term. That's my humble opinion. Changing God's created order really comes after brokenness and humility. Now, if, if this is true, this changes our prayers. It changes our approach, perhaps. It no longer are steps toward purity, but now it is a strategy for purity. Richard Foster, one of my favorite authors, in his book, Freedom of Simplicity, wrote this. Listen carefully. This is genius. There are things we can do that will draw us into this sacred sanctuary of holy obedience, he writes. The first step I want to give you is not something to do at all. It is something to refrain from doing. Very simply, we should not try to be less egocentric. The attempt would be self-defeating, he writes. The more we work at being unconcerned about ourselves, the more conscious we become. And so what are we to do? He says, nothing. Let the matter drop. It is one of those things that will never yield to a frontal attack. Concentration upon the problem redoubles its strength. Then he goes on. The second step is rather like the first in that it is a less a plan for action, more a call to focus our field of vision. We are to discipline ourselves to seek ye first the kingdom of God. He says this focus must take precedence over absolutely everything. We must never allow anything, whether deed or desire, to have that place of central importance. The moment anything else becomes the focus of of our concern, he says, it becomes idolatry. Only one thing is to be central, the kingdom of God. So, and when it's given its proper due, all other things will be given their proper attention. So this is what I'm saying to you today. Let's focus our energies on loving Jesus more. Just like we sung. Let's starve this giant by growing our hunger for God's word, God's son, and God's kingdom. 
the hymn goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's true. Lust is never a series of oops that lead to actions of oops. If we're honest, and honest enough, we would see that lust is merely a reflection of our heart's affection. It's a reflection of who we are. It's then and only then will we be in a position to slay and crush this giant. In a position to fall at the foot of the cross of Christ. Able to accept the ultimate beauty of righteousness. And this is precisely what we can learn from David after being confronted by Nathan, the prophet. As he penned a new psalm. He writes, I committed adultery because there is adultery in my heart. I covered up because there is pride in my heart. I murdered because the love of self and hatred of others is in my heart. The really shocking thing I have discovered, says David, is that what I did expressed who I am. Evil came out of me because there is evil in me. We have hope for, all, for the ultimate beauty. And wherever and whoever you are, you're never too far from God's saving grace and forgiveness and mercy. I pray that we have moments of honesty today. I pray that some of us who have struggled with lust for a very long time finds hope today, not shame or defeat. I pray that our brand of beauty is defined by the beauty of Jesus Christ who became ugly and died for us so that we might receive the ultimate beauty and glory with him. I'd like to conclude today's message with parts of the psalm penned by David himself. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and restore and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I pray we have honest moments today. And my prayer for you this entire week has been, God, would you set all the men and women, young and old, free from this giant? May we come before him with brokenness because you are not too far from his mercy and grace. Let us turn our eyes to Jesus and focus all our attention in loving him. Let's pray together. Father, as we sit here, I know you're speaking to some of us. I believe you're speaking to all of us. And Lord, would you help redefine our definition of beauty? Lord, if that is the sin beneath the sin, Lord, grant us a new definition. Open our eyes. May we see Jesus as the ultimate beauty. Grant us a spirit that just longs for you, God, and desires you more than anything else. That the things of this world will grow strangely dim in contrast to loving you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that convicts, that restores, and renews. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to invite the